This is Tech Talk with your host, Tom Dioria. Tom will spend the next hour making your life with technology a little easier with explanations of the different aspects of today's technology and how it can benefit your home, small office, or enterprise. Now here's your host, Tom Dioria. Welcome to IMI's Tech Talk on this, the first Sunday of November. It's November 1, 2015. Why, it's 5 p.m. in the New York listing area because it's now Eastern Standard Time, but we're still on at 3 p.m. in Arizona because they don't believe in these daylight savings time. And we'll get into that sometime, uh, find out the technology of Ben Franklin on that. Today we're live from our New York offices, and we're going to be discussing the rise of esports with our guest, Elliot Miller. I'm Tom DiRoya. I'm the CEO of Information Methods Incorporated, and together with our weekly guests, our show will help our listeners, whether a business or home technology user, make better use of all aspects of technology. Just in case you're a first-time listener, in our first segment, Tech Talk provides you with a review of last week's most significant events in technology. We start with our increased coverage of New York's technology scene, and we follow this with our industry-wide report which could contain information on conferences, announcements by vendors, new releases of software equipment, or new contract opportunities. One of our guests followed us from many aspects of business and industry. And if you wish us to consider a topic for a future show, you can email your suggestions to techtalk, that's T-E-C-H-T-A-L-K, at imi-us.com, and we'll get back to you pretty quickly. Anytime after our show introduction, please give us a call or send an email message with questions on today's topic or anything else we might be able to help you with. You can call 277-KFNX. That's 277-5369. And if you're outside the 602 listing area, call us toll-free at 1-866-536-1100. You can send us email questions throughout the show at that email address I gave you, techtalk at imi-us.com. We monitor that throughout the show, and if we don't get to your question on today's show, we'll definitely uh, send you a response and try and get you on next week. Uh, we're also being simulcast on the web, so if you want to listen to us live and you can't get to your radio, you can tune into the show on KFNX's website, which is 1100kfnx.com. And if you want to listen to this show again or any of our previous shows, you can go to our website, which is imi-us.com. In the upper right-hand corner is the Tech Talk button. Click on that. All the shows are there. They're archived. You can download them, listen to them as many times as you want, send them to your friends. It's free, so please take advantage of that. And please call any time during the show, and we'll try and get you on as quickly as possible. First segment's our weekend review. It's your increased coverage of technology events in New York City and around the world. It's compiled by Dave Brandon, Dan Dioria, and Jose Batista. Okay, and as you heard in the uh, news prior to the show, today was the New York City Marathon, and two Kenyans won, uh, Stanley Biwat and uh, Mary Kittany. Uh, so congratulations to them. And uh, the poor New York City Mets are one game away from losing to Kansas City. So for all your Mets fans out there, I hope that uh, the Mets can win the next three games for you and bring back uh, the World Series to New York. Okay, now for the news. Uh, the Times tells us that think of an auction house and centuries-old institutions like Sotheby's or Christie's, uh, but a four-year-old startup believes that it can become something of an online equivalent to those companies and it has drawn big-name backers from the art world along the way. The venture, Paddle 8, Paddle in the number 8, plans to announce that it has raised $34 million in a new round of financing. Among those participating in New York gallery owner David Zwerner, who is joining the company's board. 
With the new financing, Paddleite is aiming to keep expanding worldwide, tapping into its founders say its growing global demand for high-end collectibles. Unlike Sotheby's and Christie's, Paddleite is aiming for lower-priced auctions with an average price is ranging from $3,800 to $56,000 and seller commissions of only 8% often less than half what the judicial institutions charge. The startup verifies the authenticity of the merchandise sold on its platform. And unlike other online auction sites like Auctionada, it sources the items sold on its site and runs the auctions completely online. The real competitive target, according to Paddle 8's founders, are local brick-and-mortar auction houses that traditionally handle sales of that size and scope but lack the online presence and therefore often have a much smaller base of bidders. Others in the industry are not standing still. Both Christie's and Sotheby's have devoted considerable time and effort in recent years to building out their online auction business. We'll keep an eye on that for you. Quartz tells us that IBM's Watson might soon be your new weatherman. That's their big computer that played chess and Jeopardy. Uh, the company's deal is said to be worth $2 billion-plus to buy the digital technology pieces of the weather company's business, the company that runs the Weather Channel, marks IBM's first consumer-facing purchase in years. And its big bets on the cloud and Watson, its cognitive computing system, seem to be driving its decision. It means IBM will be able to bring the full force of big data to weather and potentially predict the weather and the chances of natural disasters far more accurately than ever before. Wouldn't that be nice? Weather will essentially be another real-world application of Watson. Watson's already being used by doctors to more quickly and accurately make diagnoses and by the city of Austin to help stores find better tacos. Weather company CEO David Keeney said it has billions of data points from sensors, in fact, 3 billion weather forecast reference points, as well as weather data from more than 40 million smartphones and 50,000 daily airplane flights. All this will be perfect data set to run through Watson's and IBM's cloud computing prowess to mine for new insights on weather patterns that impact our daily lives. TechCrunch tells us that everyone wants to offer same-day delivery these days, and apparently the artisan startup Etsy is no exception. That's spelled E-T-S-Y announced the debut of its new pilot program called Etsy ASAP, which allows Etsy shoppers on web and mobile the ability to request same-day and next-day deliveries from seller in the New York City metro area for an additional fee. The deliveries themselves are being handled by logistics company Postmates, but the cost for this sort of instant gratification is a bit steep. Etsy says that its ASAP deliveries will require a flat fee of $20. That's a lot more, say, than Amazon Prime now, which charges nothing for two-hour delivery windows and just $7.99 for one-hour delivery time frame. Meanwhile, Google Express offers free same-day deliveries on eligible orders, though there are order minimums requiring a range from $15 to $35. Postmates itself, meanwhile, offers one-hour delivery that starts at $5 and are determined by distance along with a 9% service fee. Meanwhile, Uber Rush, also just this month, officially launched in New York City, San Francisco, and Chicago, offering same-day deliveries for around 5 to $7, the company said. Etsy declined to details uh, the terms of its partnership with Postmates. However, the 
company did say it's only collecting the standard fee of 3.5% on the listing prices from sellers. With the floor of low-cost alternatives, it's unclear if this will be a high demand for the same day as they merchandise or if shoppers will simply turn to other less expensive services to fulfill their needs for last-minute gifts. So we'll see how this shakes out as well. CNET tells us that Nintendo is finally entering the smartphone gaming world, and its first app title would be the free-to-play Mitomo, M-I-I-T-O-M-O. Mitomo is a communication application that helps friends share fun personal facts and interests. The Japanese company said in a statement, players will create avatars called Mii's that uh, they can use to engage with friends to learn more about each other and find common interests. The game itself is free, but it will include an in-app purchases. Though the game has been expected to be released before year's end, Nintendo said recently that Minimo is scheduled for global release in March. Nintendo said that this past March that it would begin developing mobile games, but Minimo marks Nintendo's first official release in smartphone gaming of being staunchly against the proposition. While rival Sony and Microsoft both released games and, and companion apps for mobile devices. Nintendo has historically limited its releases to its own consoles and handheld gaming devices. Voice of America tells us Google's Internet theming balloons are ready to take off. The next phase of their mission is to deliver online access in regions where most people live offline. The balloons will be hovering in stratosphere above Indonesia in an expansion of the project. About 250 million people live in the country composed of about 17,000 islands that part of the Southeast Asia, although only 42 million have Internet access, and that's according to the CIA's estimates. So uh, we'll see how that goes. And uh, finally, about for the break, and we get to our guest to talk to you about the eSports, I wanted to tell you that um, the wearables store sent a wrist boom, which we've got uh, some of the staff playing with this week, and we're going to give you a review next week. Um, it's a speaker strap that you strap like a watch. That's the basic uh, pitch for this device. It's housed in a nondescript plastic shell. comes in black, blue, gray, green, and red. That's interesting because we have a white one, or maybe it's gray. Uh, it came with a matching late test strap, and it felt soft and comfortable on our wrists. It's pretty large. Uh, it doesn't casually filter under your shirt sleeve, but you can put it almost anywhere besides on your uh, on your wrist. Uh, the biggest price, however, is it actually sounds kind of great or about as good as you can expect from something small enough to be worn on your wrist. So we're pretty impressed. Uh, this is Tom Dioria. We'll get you the full review next week. Uh, this is Tom Dioria on my Tech Talk on KFNX AM 1100. We're going to take a break. We'll be back with our guests. Please stay tuned after these messages. Welcome back to IMI's Tech Talk on KFNX AM 1100. I'm Tom DiOri. It's the 1st of November, 2015. It's the first day of Eastern Standard Time everywhere but in uh, Phoenix where they always have Standard Time. As I mentioned to you before the break, our guest today is Elliot Miller, and we're going to be talking to you about eSports. And uh, Elliot has reported on the world of eSports since 2013. Last year, he started his own event management company, 2B Gosu, and has worked with some of the biggest eSports events in the United Kingdom. 
He recently moved to the United States to work in live video streaming and has is starting to run events in the United States. Elliot, uh, thanks uh, for taking the time to be with us. How are you doing today? Uh, I'm doing very well, thank you, Tom. I'm afraid I've got a little bit of a, a cough has appeared this morning, so I'll try not to deafen your listeners with a... With, uh, with that. That's all right. I don't think they can catch anything over the air. So, um, Okay, so we're talking about eSports, and I've got to believe that many of our listeners have no idea what that is. So maybe you could spend a little time explaining eSports. Yeah, sure. So what eSports is, is it's professional competitive gaming. So as with any other sport, you have leagues, you have tournaments, you've got big prize money on the line. And people make a professional living and a career out of competing in this field. And it's, it's grown beyond that where we have uh, event organizations and broadcasting organizations, you know, who have on their payroll commentators, event managers, team managers. We've got coaches, um, just the whole shebang, really. Anything you can think of, like, oh, well, does esports have this, like in traditional sports? The answer is yes. Okay, so eSports has traditional sports, and I gather it has non-traditional sports. Oh, sorry. So what I mean, so yeah, the core part of all this is, of course, it's all with computer games and playing computer games at a professional competitive level. Um, so typically these games are, um, sometimes they're on consoles like Xbox and PlayStation, but typically they're on computer. And... Um, they're nearly always multiplayer games of one human or a team of humans against another person or another team of people. Um, it's never like Mario and you're trying to beat it in the fastest time. There are people who do that, but that's not eSports. It's got to be competitive. It's got to be me beating another person in a video game. And are the people in, are the people in the same room doing this with an audience, or how does that work? So um, a lot of leagues are, you know, the weekly kind of every night there's a match to play for qualifiers and big tournaments. Often those will be done online with the teams competing from wherever they live. But there are huge stadium-filling events where they bring the fly-in the players and they have them compete on a stage in front of a roaring audience. And that has reached uh, huge numbers in recent years. They, uh, last year for the League of Legends World Championship, they filled out the sole, uh, World Cup football stadium they built specifically for when the World Cup football came to South Korea. So they filled out that stadium with fans eager to see esports being competed. That's amazing. How long do these events usually last? Are they, uh, you know, hours? Uh, it depends on the game. Um, you know, some computer games, have, like, there's, there's a point where the game has to end. Um, you know, so Hearthstone is a video game that's a virtual card-playing game. So at some point you run out of cards and the game is over. Um, whereas games like League of Legends or Dota 2, these don't have a time limit. So these matches can last for hours at a time. So typically a tournament will um, have a, a series of events to kind of get the get the top 16 decided, and then the event will last the whole weekend. And the final matches could be one hour long, they could be five hours long. It kind of depends really on how the games play out. 
So how did you get involved in all of this? I mean, what what's your background? Where how does you know? So I was first introduced to esports um, when I was at university, and I just completely fell in love with it. Like the the things uh, these professionals could do with the game just blew me away, and I wanted to learn how to do that. And I tried watching a lot of tutorial videos, watching a lot of popular figures and their matches and trying to replicate what I saw them do. Um, but I'm just not that good. <laughs> I'm just not that good a player. So I started writing about it um, and doing opinion pieces for ESFI World and ESL Gaming, who are big, um, big websites and event managers in that field. And then I started attending events in South Korea and in Germany and doing interviews and talking directly to the people, um, you know, big names in the esports world. And then after that, I started running my own events because um, there weren't any events in my area, and I just really wanted to hang out with other people who loved esports. So I started doing that. And um, now I live and work in San Francisco. So where did this all start? How long has it been going on? So esports is, um, it really started booming around 2010. And in like the past year or two, people like the BBC and ESPN have been fun to take notice of it. But it's been around since uh, the mid-90s. When we first really saw professional um, players like, doing this as a career, not just as a, a financial hobby, um, that was in South Korea in 1998, following the release of a game called Starcraft Brood War. And Seoul really is the birthplace of esports. And that's where we started to see teams, um, coming together, living in a house together, having cooks to manage their diet, and really spending all day, every day, training to be the best they possibly could be at this game to compete in tournaments in South Korea. And it took a little bit longer for the West to catch up, um, but that's where it all sort of really began. So when you're running an event, let, well, let's go back to the event you said that sold out the stadium. Um, is the only way I get to see the event if I have a ticket and I'm in the stadium, or can I see it online somehow? So the um, what I mentioned before about esports really starting to boom in 2010, that was the result of a live streaming platform called Twitch. And Twitch enabled people for the first time to broadcast their love of gaming online for free. Before that, you had to pay for live video streaming services, like the company I currently work for. You, know, you have to pay for that. By making it accessible, it suddenly made esports, um, you know, not just easier for people to run events, but to broadcast them and to grab the attention of the world um, from any location on the planet. And so now, yeah, you get a stadium filled out in Seoul, and that's you know, 60,000, 80,000 people, but there's 32 million people watching online, and that's really where we've seen the power of esports in recent years. Um, Unlike a lot of conventional sports where it's like, you know, there's a 90-minute time limit and then the match is over, uh, esport matches, a lot of them can keep going on and on and on. So during a really big American tournament uh, called the International, which was run in August of this year, there were 100,000 people watching the tournament for five hours a day for two weeks. Um, the numbers are really quite incredible. Uh, people will tune in from all over the world to watch this on the, the Twitch platform, 
and they will um, they will watch for hours and hours and hours. We're starting to see a couple of new platforms come out, like Azubu and Hitbox, and there are some other ones in Asia as well, like Africa. Um, but Twitch is still the, the market leader in, in hosting esports content. So this seems like a uh, very large, growing industry that only gamers know about, or is it is it going beyond that now? I think it's starting to catch the attention of um, you know, as I said, uh, so with the we just finished like yesterday, the League of Legends World Championships just ended. Um, and some of that was broadcasted on BBC Free on their um, online service. And we've seen previous uh, tournaments uh, broadcast on ESPN2 online as well. So people are starting to take notice that this is a really big thing that has got a lot of people watching it. But there's not a whole lot of understanding. And that's a problem esports has, is that for me to appreciate why, why this is so incredible to watch, um, you kind of need to have played the video game to have an understanding of why what they're doing is incredible. Like, I can watch Wimbledon, and I can see how fast, like, Federer and Nadal move. I can be blown away, because I know I can't physically do that. I'm just, I'm small, I'm not very fast. Like, I, I could not physically do that. Whereas to understand why esports is incredible, you kind of have to have played the game to be able to follow uh, not just matches, but also why they're just the best in the world at doing this. Oh, that's good. I want to ask you more about that. We're going to take a break. This is Tom DiOrio on IMI's Tech Talk on KFNX AM 1100. We're talking to Elliot Miller about eSports. It's the 1st of November, 2015. So please stay tuned. Uh, we're going to be back with him. We're going to talk a little bit a lot. We're back about eSports. IMI Tech Talk on KFNX AM 1100. I'm Tom DeUri. It's the 1st of November 2015. Good luck to the Mets. Um, we're talking to Elliot Miller about the rise of esports. And um, Elliot, before the break, uh, we were talking about uh, some of the events uh, that you go to and sponsor. Um, if these 80,000 people are sitting uh, in an event, um, are they all knowledgeable players of whatever the sport is they're watching, or are the novices trying to figure it out? Or do you do you have a feel for what the mix of the audience is? Well, so for me, the real appeal of esports, of watching professional competitive video games, is that it it's so um, it's so accessible, it's so immediate. Like me and my friends will be watching a tournament, and we'll be like, wow. That was absolutely mind-blowing what he did. Let's open up the game and try and do that. And that's something that you can't, um, you can't do with, um, you know, like traditional sports like American football, soccer, and tennis. Like, okay, that looks great, but if I want to do that, I need to be in physical shape. Like, I need to be at the peak of perfection, and I need to go somewhere to have a pitch to go and do that, and I need a whole team of people. Whereas esports, sure, it's just as difficult to be that good, but there's no barrier to me trying. And that's a really interesting relationship between esports at the professional level 
and the people in the audience is that they're watching and they're taking mental notes. And some of them may be really, really good. Some of them may be really poor. Some of them maybe even don't have the time to play the game anymore. But they can all appreciate what they're seeing being done in this game. And if you want to play these games now, you need to be watching the professional esports scene. Because if you don't, then you're just going to be really, really bad at the game. <laughs> so there's an actual need now to be watching it, to be, to be watching professional matches, to play that video game anywhere near that skill, to like have an idea of what you should be doing. Um, so that's the kind of the real interesting link is, yes, definitely everyone in the audience, the skill varies, but they've all got an interest in perhaps trying to do what they can see the people uh, doing in the video game. Now, are there any, besides the professional games, are there any amateur, uh, you know, are there esports for amateurs? Um, yeah, there's quite a sizable market of just kind of daily tournaments or weekend tournaments. So I'm helping um, a fellow in Los Angeles right now who goes by the name online as Sancho9000. Um, he runs weekly, just really fun Hearthstone tournaments. And so I'm helping him promote that during the week. I'm helping him do the event organizing. We're going to start looking at maybe getting some prizes for that. And it's just kind of like a fun thing for people to do at the weekend with their friends. So what I'm, interested... of... oh, I'm sorry. No, so I was going to say, so there's, so there's definitely um, complete just for fun tournaments out there. But then there is the kind of the amateurs who are going to tournaments and they're just hoping to get a little bit of prize money. You know, they're placing pretty low down. They're going to events like um, the smaller events like Insomnia in the UK um, with the dreams that maybe they can try and get good enough to get into some of the bigger events and win more prize money and eventually work their way up to being a professional. So it's very much just like in um, in any other kind of sport, um, you want to keep putting yourself out there and keep competing and hopefully you can transition from an amateur to a professional. And the exciting thing about esports right now is that gap is still very small. So how much money is involved here, both for the amateur we're just talking about, but for the real professional? What, what makes you a professional? So I think for me what makes you a professional is your ability to do this full-time um, with no other commitment. Like, this is your career. This is what you do all day, every day. Um, and so right now, there's the Hearthstone World Championships is going on. The finals for that are going to be next weekend at, at BlizzCon at the Game Developers Annual Big Convention. Um, and there's an interesting mix of players in that. We've got people who manage their own teams. We've got the former world champion from last year. We've got people who make a professional living out of this. But then we've also got some people who are just really good at the game and they're doing quite well in the tournament. So they're, you know, they're saying things like, well, you know, if I win, that's nice and maybe I'll keep it up. But if I lose, it's not a big deal and I've had some fun. And they'll go back home to their day job, essentially. So that, that game, that eSport, because every game played as an eSport is a, a different ecosystem, you know, there's a lot of, um, there's a very fine line between amateur and professional, whereas other games, to be that good, you have to train every single day, 12 hours a day, uh, to keep it up. 
And but how much money are we talking about here? So um the let's have a look. So yesterday, um the League of Legends world champion team, they won one million dollars for winning that tournament. Um so that's one million dollars split between the winning the members of the winning team, so that's five people. So that breaks down to not a whole lot. Um, the Hearthstone World Championships, which I just mentioned, are going to be played the finals next weekend, along with the StarCraft World Championships, another game. Um, those World Champions will both win $100,000 for themselves because it's a one-on-one game. The biggest prize pools have been the International, which is an annual Dota 2 game. Uh, this year, the prize pool was eighteen and a half million U.S. dollars. So and how is that all funded? Is that funded by the uh, the gaming uh, interests, or is it funded by the tickets to the people attending? How does how do, where does that money come from? So it kind of it varies from um, from championship to championship. A lot of it can be sponsorship money. You know, a lot of these sponsors are things like energy drinks graphic cards, computer companies like, um, you know, Windows and Intel are big sponsors in this scene, um, as well as things like Red Bull and Monster Energy. Sometimes it's the game developers themselves put up the, the money because they're, um, you know, some of the bigger game companies can do that, like Riot, um, Blizzard, and Valve. And it's in their interest, you know, to get so much uh, exposure, to get so much marketing out of watch, having millions of people watch their game being played. But with the international, they've been able to create these ridiculously huge prize pools by um, having an in-game reward system. So what you do is you buy a little book, and the book lets you make predictions on who's going to win the tournament, who's going to win the qualifying for Asia, who's going to win the qualifying for Europe, um, you know, what are the final scores going to be, how many times is this character going to be picked in the game. And it really encourages you to watch the tournament and use this book alongside it because the more you use the book, the more in-game rewards you get. And the more people who buy this in-game book, the more prizes people who own the book get. So it gets this bigger and bigger and bigger thing, where, um, which is essentially kind of crowdfunding. Um, you know, the more people want to support the tournament and get prizes for supporting the tournament, the more money they get. And that's how... They went from, you know, about a couple of million that they put up themselves to six million on the first day, and before the tournament started, it was an eighteen million dollar prize tournament. So how did this get so big? All of a sudden, it seems like it's a relatively short period of time that this thing is has gotten so big. I mean, eighty thousand people is a lot of people. Uh, all that money is a lot of money. What happened to make this all coalesce? So, like I said before, one of the big um, boosts for this was a website called Twitch.tv that allowed people to broadcast for free, which really appealed to the esports uh, organizers. And, um, you know, its whole angle is that it's for video game content being broadcast. So that being accessible in 2010 is when we started to see the boom. And in South Korea, they'd already been broadcasting the game StarCraft on television. So there was already a professional scene there that could 
take hold of this new power of Twitch and really launch um, in like the early uh, 2010 years. Um, by now, what we're starting to see is uh, gaming has become a more general ho- hobby and esports is more accessible. You can just go to Twitch, pick a game, and you can probably find a tournament these days. Um, I remember when we used to watch one tournament a month. Now there's, I've got five to choose from today. And I, you know, I have to pick and choose what I watch now. It's kind of become such a viable uh, industry because there are so many people who are interested in it. And that's a, a generational thing. Well, that's pretty, uh, that's pretty amazing. I want to ask you, we're going to take a break now, but I want to ask you when we come back what the risk is to the players uh, if they're, you know, solely experts, professionals in one game, what's the risk that that game is going to go out of favor and they're going to be left with, uh, I don't know what you would call it, an older antique game, but we'll talk about that later. <laughs> this is Tom DiOrio. We're talking to Elliot Miller about the rise of esports. We're on IMI Tech Talk. This is KFNX AM 1100. It's the 1st of November, 2017. Please stay tuned. We'll be right back after these messages. Hi, it's Tech Talk. I'm KFNX AM 1100. I'm Tom Dury. It's the 1st of November 2015. And uh, we're talking about the rise of esports with our guest, Elliot Miller. And before the break, uh, we were talking about the size of these prizes and the, the size of the audiences and stuff. And the question I had for Elliot is, okay, I'm at the pinnacle. I'm at the top of my game. I've been... Uh, Learning every all the ins and outs of whatever the specific game is that I'm that I'm playing, and what's the risk that that's going to go away and I'm going to be left with an old game that nobody cares about? It is um, a big problem in esports, and it's the reason why uh, not every game can be an esport. So, you know, to be an esport, a video game needs to be competitive. It needs to be multiplayer. Someone needs to win, and someone needs to lose. And there are some games that are happy to just do that and just be a multiplayer game and improve the way the game plays. It's not as well suited for games that come out on consoles like Xbox and PlayStation. So, for example, The Call of Duty um, is a really famous series of shooting games, but they make a new one every single year. So if you get really, really good at playing one Next year, um, everything could change, and suddenly you're not a, a professional esports player anymore. And that's why we've seen uh, that scene not grow as big as compared to something like um, like Dota 2 or League of Legends, which have stayed the same for several years um, with some slight changes. Um, so that's a, a a big risk for them. It's like you know, if I get really good at this game, how do I switch out of that if something uh, if it just evaporates one day? And, and one way a lot of people do that is with um, commentary. Like if you, you know, a lot of sports players, when they're looking towards retirement, well, they know the game really well, so they move into things like coaching and commentary. And we've seen uh, esports professionals do that already. Now, do they do some of these professionals, unlike uh, physical sports, um, where I doubt they play more than one, do some of them... Uh, you know, hedge their bets and uh, become uh, good at more than one game? Um, rarely. Um, very, very rarely. Sometimes we've seen players 
switch from one game to another um, entirely. And because these games are so difficult to play at the highest professional level, um, it usually takes your complete full time. So there's certainly no players that I'm aware of, at least it very rarely happens, who play multiple games at the same time. But occasionally there are career switches, and we've seen that happen. Um, a number of StarCraft II players switched over to a completely different game called Hearthstone later on because it was still a game that involved a lot of strategic thinking and knowledge, but it didn't have um, mechanical dexterity as a necessary component of the game. We saw a couple of players make that switch um, with varying degrees of success. Now, um, you mentioned this before. If, if I'm going to, you know, I'm good and I'm playing, I'm winning some amateur games and stuff, and I really want to uh, pursue the big money, is this something that's going to consume my life? Absolutely. Um, you've really got to go to every tournament you can and compete and compete. And it doesn't matter if you come dead last or first, you've just got to go to the next tournament and keep competing. Sadly, um, actual esports athletes on salaries is a real kind of reserve for the elite uh, opportunity. Like, you have to be really good, and your game, your esports scene may not even have teams who are willing to take you on and pay you a salary like that. We do know that um, players on teams, big teams like Evil Geniuses, earn up to six-figure salaries, and then they've got their prize money on top of that. But for a lot of amateurs trying to work their way up, they're living from prize money to prize money. And that can be difficult with the traveling to the physical locations all around the world. That can become a real big investment and a real, uh, real difficult to break even. Tell me again about the prize money. I mean, not the prize money, the salaries. Um, how do teams, I mean, how does that work? I mean, so who's the sponsor? Of the, who's paying the salaries? So um, a really big American team is called Evil Geniuses, and they have sponsors, long-running sponsors, with people like um, um, Monster Energy. Um, so you see a lot of energy drinks. We see a lot of graphics cards and, like, computer operators who give them sponsorship money. Um, and that's largely how they make their salary, as well as having their own marketing teams and their own PR people because, hey, they've got a lot of team players who've got lots of followers on Twitter. They've got lots of followers on Facebook. They've got a real big presence on YouTube and on uh, streaming platforms like Twitch. So there's a lot of people looking at them. And so there's a lot of ground power you can work there. And even their own merchandise um, is another factor of that. So, but largely, it, it comes down from uh, sponsorship. How big is this overall industry? I mean, how many players there are? How many tournaments? Goodness, that's a, that's a real big question, because what I love about eSports is that it's truly global. Um, there's lots of people in Seoul and South Korea playing. There's lots of people in China. There's lots of people in Sweden, in Eastern Europe, in the UK, in Germany, in France. In America and Canada, there's even quite a few players coming out of Brazil and uh, Malaysia. Uh, every once in a while, someone makes it out of Australia as well. So it really is a, a global industry. And the population kind of changes depending on what the game is being played. So esports is used to refer to every game that's played at a competitive level. But 
you know, not all of them are as big as the other. So, for instance, a really big one in America is Super Smash Bros., which is a fighting game. And that's immensely popular here, especially in California. Uh, if you look at the top 100 professional uh, players in Super Smash Bros., I was looking at it the other day, there are 18 who aren't American. So that's a really big game in America. But the overall population of that game is much smaller compared to something like League of Legends, which is one of the most popular games being played in the world. That's, that's uh, an amazing uh, statistic. I'm going to ask you a question. I, I don't mean it to be demeaning, but mm. if you've got 80,000 people spending days looking at these tournaments, don't they have a job? <laughs> well, um, it depends how you watch it. Um, so when I'm at work, I'll often have on my um, other monitor, I'll have um, an eSports tournament on, and I'll just be listening to it while I'm watching it work. Um, sorry, while I'm doing work. And if but that's your, but that's it, your business, Elliot. Well, it's not my job to sit and watch <laughs> eSports tournaments all day. My job is, uh, is a bit more involved than that. Um, <laughs> so, but, you know, it's something I'll listen to in the background as if I was listening to music, and that's how a lot of people watch tournaments. And then, you know, sometimes they're in the evening, sometimes they're on a weekend. Um, again, the wonderful thing about it being so global is that there's nearly always something going on because of the different time zones. When I lived in the UK, I'd get up in the morning, I'd have breakfast and watch a tournament in South Korea. I'd have my whole day and then the evening I'd watch a tournament that was um, coming out of Europe somewhere. So if I want to start listening and, and maybe not participating, but at least... Uh following, how do I go about doing that? Do I just uh, Google eSports or Google the name of the game, or how do I get into it? Hmm. Well, as I said, there are other live video platforms out there that host video game tournaments and eSports content like Azubu and Hitbox, but the big one, the big market leader is Twitch.tv, and if you just go to Twitch.tv, chances are one of their featured channels is an eSports tournament. If not the top three, um, they'll have like on the front page, they'll have like, oh, these games are the ones being most played at the moment. I'm being, sorry, most watched. So you can click on one, and if it's the most watched one, it's probably because there's a tournament on, um, you know. And that's a, an easy way to judge is to just go there and click around. It, it can be confusing, though, because there's a difference between playing a game competitively as an esports professional and being a live streamer who uh, makes a living playing video games. So the kind of, both those people live on Twitch and make a living that way, but the content they're doing may or may not be competitive. So if you want to get into it, try going on Twitch and clicking a game and just seeing if there's a tournament on. Other than that, you can watch things on YouTube. Um, there's some really good promotional videos by ESL Gaming, who I think kind of show what it's really about. Um, but the best way, the absolute best way, maybe the only, the only way, is to play the game and to find some friends who are interested to sit you down and explain to you why what you're seeing is absolutely awesome. And if our listeners want to follow up with you, Elliot, what's the best way for them to do that? Uh, well, you can find my event management website at www.tobegosu.com, so T-O-B-E-G-O-S-U. 
twobeghosts.com, or you can follow me on Twitter at twobeghosts. Elliot, thanks for taking the time to be with us. It was a great show. I think you informed our listeners a lot about esports, and uh, hopefully that'll increase the uh, number of people participating. Um, we can only hope. We always we always want more players. We always want more viewers. If I can answer any questions about why it's so popular, please let me know. Great. Thanks again. Uh, and I hope your cold gets better. <laughs> Thank Next you very week, much. Next week, we're going to be live from our New York offices, and we're going to start our holiday product reviews. As I uh, mentioned to you, um, we're in the process of reviewing uh, a wearable Bluetooth speaker, and uh, we'll get back to with what our uh, staff thinks of that. I want to thank Terry Ruggiero, IMI's President, Dave Brandon, Dan DiOri, and Jose Batista for the Week in Review. Taylor Redden's our producer, Tess Enchor is our associate producer, Matt Campagni is our executive producer, and without the help of the production department at KFNX AM 1100, you wouldn't have heard a word I said. Thanks again for listening, and please don't forget to tune in to Tech Talk next week at 5 p.m. on KFNX AM 1100. Have a great week, and thanks for listening.